Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where we've got to get to the gate in mad max 2 the road warrior one minute at a time i'm rick and i'm julia and today we're talking about minute 53 which begins with papagallo letting his guard down and it ends with wes perched atop the tanker trailer Ah, that's a good minute it starts off strong for papagallo he is up there on the turret he is shooting a veritable wall of flame at the on foot raiders but he makes the cardinal mistake of a character in a Mad Max movie. And I've definitely noticed this the more I watch these movies, that if you are doing something, if you are driving or if you are manning a turret or anything like that, and you look behind you, bad things are going to happen. Either you're going to get flattened by a truck or some dingleberry in a dune buggy is going to drive in front of you and cut you off and cause you to crash, or you're (laughs) going to get shot in the leg with an arrow. So keep your eyes forward. That's one of the lessons of this movie. This mistake of his reiterates that he's not a warrior. The people in the compound, aside from warrior woman, are not warriors. Yeah. If he, you know, had military training, proper military training, he would know just... Man your post, pay attention to what you are supposed to pay attention to, and trust your cohorts to be taking care of things where they're supposed to be taking care of things. Yeah. Don't turn your back, just focus on what you're supposed to do. I don't remember us ever finding a source. Remember when we had Travis Bow on the podcast and he was talking about the idea of Papagallo being former military? I think he was mixing up Wes. Yeah. I never found any source for Papagallo having that background. Right. Yeah, I think he was thinking of Wes. Yeah. It's an easy mistake to make when you're not buried in this movie one minute at a time every day, all day. (laughs) Well, not all day, but most of the day. All right. (laughs) Maybe not most of the day, but still, at least 30 minutes a day. (laughs) I do wonder why Papagallo stopped shooting the flamethrower. I have a feeling that Papagallo was concerned about the fact that there were four raiders inside Uh, the compound. He was looking just to see how everybody was faring with that situation because mm -hmm. you've got Wes shouting the gate, the gate, and you've got the warrior woman jumping around and cutting throats and you've got people shooting arrows everywhere. It's very chaotic and of course he's responsible for all these people and so his concentration is yes outside the gate making sure no one gets close keep him at bay with the flamethrower but at the same time he's still very much concerned about what's going on amongst all of these noises that he's hearing so it makes sense that he would look back it's just this is the movie series where if you look back bad things happen Mm -hmm. and of course the bad thing that happens comes in the form of a raider and I think he's perched behind one of the burnt out wrecked cars okay that's the vantage point i think he's at we really don't get to see where he is you can see on the side of the frame some metal looking parts so he's near some vehicle somewhere Mm -hmm. but we really don't get any more information than that he's pretty much somewhere outside the compound Mm -hmm. and he has a crossbow with a bright red arrow sitting on that crossbow it is bright red from shaft to fletching 
unmistakable in its recognizability. And it's got this big old broad arrowhead on it. It's huge. And before this shot is finished, we see that raider shoot that arrow. And then in the next shot, we see, oh no, Papagallo has caught an arrow in the leg. However, that arrow is neither red shafted or red fletched. It is completely different. Now, before I go into that too much further, A-plus acting from Mike Preston. You totally buy that he just got shot in the leg with how he retches over and he goes, or something like that. Top notch. Great work there. But more importantly, and like I said before, the arrow is now white shafted with yellow and white fletching. Completely different. We get a quick shot of the raider reloading his crossbow and retreating a little bit. And then we see a third shot where Papagallo spins and falls and lands on his back on a lower platform. When he falls to the platform, the arrow is now silver shafted with (laughs) white and red fletching. So... In the chaos of this scene, it would be easy to, I would say, overlook the fact that Papagallo is shot by three separate arrows. Yeah, I didn't notice at all. However, when you are looking this closely at the movie, it's hard not to see it. So I'm just wondering, what is George Miller not telling us? Like, where are these other arrows coming from? Are the Cubans involved? Why won't he answer any questions about the second raider on the grassy knoll? These are important things (laughs) that George Miller is not telling us, and I think it's really shady that we don't know these things. What I think is shady is why it took the raiders so long to take out Papagallo. All right, that is a much more legitimate line of conversation. We're going to drop my conspiracy and go with that. (laughs) I think you're absolutely right, because those turrets don't offer 100% coverage. Yes, you are behind something, and you are shooting flames, and it's very easy to deter people from aggressing you. But at the same time, if you stop for a moment, very much like Pabagallo did, and turn your back on the situation, someone who is out of range of your flamethrower, but within range of their crossbow, yeah, they can just shoot at you. There's nothing stopping them. Yeah, they, they knew that the flamethrower was there. They've seen it used in the past. The pink car was exploded just in the movie time a few seconds ago. I think taking out Papagallo should have been priority number one. Right. And I know that that strategy hasn't worked in the past. One of the very first times that we saw the compound from Max's vantage point up on the pinnacle, we saw somebody go down from the flamethrower. Exactly. And somebody was right there super fast to take his place. So, yes, it could have happened that way, but it didn't because in the chaos of being attacked from inside and outside, it took most of this minute for Papagallo's post to be replaced. Exactly. And that's only because Max is good at his job. He's observant and saw that Papagallo went down and saw the need and went to go fill it. Yeah, I find the Raiders and, to a certain extent, the compound dwellers to be very stingy with their arrows. Arrows are the kind of thing where, yes, if you don't have a lot of resources, like these people don't have a lot of resources, you probably don't want to be firing them all willy-nilly everywhere. But at the same time, arrows are largely reusable. And so if you are firing all of your arrows at the bad guys, once they retreat, you can go retrieve those arrows, and now you have all your arrows back. That's a very good point, and I completely agree with it. 
but only the winner gets their arrows back. The losers don't get to go reclaim their arrows. That's true. It's very true. So it's a gamble. Do you use up all of your ammo in an effort to win and risk still losing anyways, and now you have no ammo? Hmm. But you never know when one shot could make the difference between winning and losing the battle. Exactly. You miss 100% of the shots that you don't take, and I feel like there are a lot of situations in this movie where people are missing shots that they could have made that they just didn't. I think the one major outlier in this example is David when he gets all emotional once the Lord Humongous and the Horde leave, I think the first time, where he yells, oh, we'll never walk away, and then he fires his bow out <laughs> into the field. Like, that's a right. waste right there. That is genuinely a waste. Like, he was going to do nothing productive with that. But at the same time, you've got all of these raiders storming up to the camp, and yeah, there's chaos within. But, you know, people have arrows. David did something very productive in taking out that raider that was running towards the bus using his crossbow for something. Everybody else is like swinging around shovels and things like that. You can't tell me that they haven't been practicing drills or emergency protocols at all. I don't think they have. Really? That I think they are... Th thoroughly unprepared for this that surprises me so much i'm willing to believe it i'm just surprised so much by it i just don't think they have the resources mm. for that type of thing that's true we know papagallo is an oil executive has spent his life behind a desk warrior woman we don't know much about her we background. don't I mean, she could have been like Papagallo, spent her life behind a desk, and when it came time to embrace this new life, she found that it really suited her. So this may be a completely new persona for her, mm -hmm. where she finds that she's good at being ruthless and killing people. Yeah. Or she could have a military background. Could be. Could be. And nobody else really stands out as having any kind of training or leadership at all. Yeah, Zeta, that of is, course, has leadership, but... That is very obvious when you look at all the extras in the compound, just how doughy yes. they are. Yeah. The kind of people that you look at and you're like, wow, if you just stayed in the oven a little bit longer, oh, wow. you would have come out like is, ready to rumble. That is a little judgmental, because... I mean, Archie Whitley is not at all doughy, and she's hanging out doing nothing. Yeah, but she's credited. She's not an extra. Oh, wow. I okay. was making a very specific distinction okay. <laughs> between the credited actors and the non-credited actors. So Wes is standing up on the platform that he threw David from the other day, and we assume that he just saw Papagallo fall down because Papagallo was up on the gate, and then he fell back in a dramatic fashion. So Wes, I think, is looking to move towards the gate. Right. If he can get to the flamethrower and turn it around mm -hmm. and use it on the dwellers... Not sure how effective that would be because the bus, you know, the angle from where the, the flamethrower is down to where actual people are, I think the bus would be in between that line of sight. But it would still be much more effective for the raiders if Wes was on that flamethrower. Right. So he's got to get from point A to point B. And while he could jump down from that platform and run across the center of the compound... There's a lot of people in his way. And so he opts instead to take a rope that is just sitting behind him. Conveniently. And he does a Tarzan swing from that platform out to a support tower. And he's very... Hmm, how am I going to say this? And he's very... I would 
dare say graceful doing it. It's a very nice even swing. He goes from point A to point B without too much opposition from anyone. I would rate it highly as part of the Olympic board. (laughs) The problem is, is that the highest scores and the lowest scores get thrown out. So that's both of our scores gone right there. Really? You didn't think he executed very effectively? Well, I did. It was fine. I wasn't impressed by it. Okay. Let's put it that way. It was a fine swing. So his technique was solid in its execution, but the level of difficulty was low. I wouldn't even say that. I just wasn't impressed. Like, people have been swinging like that in movies since 1932, and this is nothing that you haven't seen a million times before? I guess so. That's fair. I was more impressed by his method of climbing up onto the catwalk Mm. from a day or two ago. That was more impressive to me. This is just fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not lame. It's not poorly executed. It's just fine. After Wes swings over to this support tower, we cut back to Max. And Max is looking up. And I'm assuming he's looking up at Wes, who just swung over to the platform. And Max looks towards the gate, because I'm pretty sure he's picking up what we were picking up. The idea that Wes is trying to move towards the gate. And when Max sees that Papagallo has gone down and there's no one on that flamethrower, he hops down from the Mac and starts booking it across the center of the compound. Because one thing that Max has that Wes does not is Max has a lot of people that are technically on his side that aren't going to harass him. But that still doesn't prevent him from running into one of the raiders. <laughs> yeah, his run-in with the raider, it felt very high schoolish. <laughs> like a high school football tackle? No, like you're walking down the hall and you just bang body first into <laughs> your crush and you're mortified. It- that's what kind of run-in it was. That's a very specific example. Well, I think it was a very specific run-in. <laughs> and it's not just that they run into each other. Max more or less tackles this guy to the ground, or at least they fall over together. Yeah, I think they fall over together. Now, it was really quick, and I know you have frame-by-frame capabilities. Did Max have a knife in his hand? Did Max stab him with the knife like as they ran into each other and tumbled to the ground? That I did not notice. I just thought I saw something flash. I'm not sure. The one thing that I am sure of is that after they dropped the ground, Zeta is there very soon after to take over, I guess, pinning duties so that the other dwellers can, you know, take care of this guy. And that allows Max to get up and continue running. Now, this guy that got tripped over, I want to say, by Max, he is Raider number three of the four that I've counted. Obviously, we lost two of them yesterday, the two leather-clad dudes. One got his throat slit, one got shot in the back by David. Right. This guy here is number three. He gets gets more or less tackled, pinned by Zeta, and then finished off by the rest of the raiders. By finished off, you mean killed? I believe so. Okay, that's a bit dark. They had him captured and disabled. He was essentially defenseless, a defenseless prisoner, and they just killed him? Welcome to the Wasteland. I know. The rules are different now. The rules are different now. Given the opportunity, he definitely would have killed every single one of them, and there would have been zero value in keeping him alive. I know Wasteland morality, we let a lot slide. We've mentioned it before. We let a lot of things slide out of the idea of Wasteland morality. I 
kind of have a hard time with this. This is dark, but you know, whatever. While Max is running towards the gate and having his run-in with Raider number three, we catch up with Raider number four, who is another one of those smegma crazies, and he's got the hatchet. He's probably the most well-armed of the four Raiders that were down in amongst the compound, and you can tell that he's rather strong because someone comes in to swing a shovel at his face, and he catches the handle and then pushes it back. However... This specific raider seems to have a very specific weakness, and that is, what's the force of being hit by something that's swinging? I don't think there's a specific name for it. Um, his weakness is comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Goofy ways of taking someone out, because as he's running across the center of the compound, the mechanics assistant, we see him having one end of the mechanics, I guess, gimbal or whatever we're calling it, and he runs one way, and the mechanic swings around and just hits this raider like a wrecking ball. He comes in like a wrecking ball and flattens this guy right out. He drops his hatchet, he's down on the ground, and then I'm assuming other people come in just finish him off because being hit like that wouldn't kill you. I mean, unless his head landed on a rock. I don't know what the Smegma crazies wear for headgear. So yeah, I think it was mostly a distraction. Yeah. A very good distraction that distracted him for a good long time so that like Marauder number three, he could be surrounded and controlled and murdered. Yep. After we see Raider number four get taken out, we rejoin Wes who has just slid down the canopy of one of the tents, I guess, that was attached to the support tower he was just on, which, I gotta say, sliding down that tent looked pretty fun. It did. A little piece of his costume fell off. Yeah. Did you, you saw that? I saw it fall off. I don't know what part of his costume it was, though. Yeah, I couldn't see what it was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, something fell off. And now that he's on the ground, he's running through the camp on the side, so no one's there to stop him. So after we see him run by, he leaves leaps up onto the side of a red box truck and climbs up to the top of the cab. Right after we see Wes do that, we see Max cross the center of the compound and climb up on top of the bus gate. And I like that we're seeing a bit of a mirroring effect. We're seeing Wes do something, then we're seeing Max do essentially the same thing to, I would say, illustrate how they're evenly matched. What do you think? I love this minute for what Wes does. He sees an opening on the opposite side of the compound that he wants to get to. After he sees it, he's it's really quick. He's like got a look in his eyes like, I want to get there. How do I get there? And he makes a path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. How can I get over there encountering the fewest people who are just going to slow me down? So I love that he takes this path, leaping from one thing to another, touching the ground only if he has to, and then taking the first opportunity to get back up off the ground. I think it's really fantastic. Max doesn't have to do that. He does the same thing. He sees the need and he figures out the path. But because Max is in a sort of friendly territory, the people aren't going to attack him. Right. So he can make a beeline for it. And even then he gets slowed down once. Mm -hmm. So Wes is able to leap from the top of the red box truck that he just climbed up onto over to the tanker trailer. And so he's now perched on top of it. And we get this nice shot of... The compound dwellers all in the middle of the compound, and then we see Wes stand up on top of that tanker. And in this instance specifically, I have to go back to my whole, you miss every shot you don't take, because there are at least two dwellers standing there with bows, arrows ready to go. All they have to do is pull back and shoot. Right. Even if it's not an instant kill shot. 
or an eventual kill shot, even if all they do is make him fall down mm-hmm. like they did with Papagallo, then they can murder him in cold blood later. I love that you're insinuating that what the compound dwellers are doing to the raiders is cold-blooded murder it is cold-blooded murder it's not the same as sneaking in their window and slitting their throats at night like this is war right but the rules of war and i know these are like modern our society rules of war is that once an opponent is your prisoner and is disarmed you can't just kill them there are rules there are societal norms yes there are written rules of war but there are also moral societal rules that say you don't kill an unarmed person especially when they're your prisoner mm. yeah i don't think there are such things as prisoners in the wasteland it's kill or be killed that's the situation we're dealing with that's the lens that we have to look at it i suppose but i still think it's cold-blooded murder all right you're welcome to that idea okay i can't stop you from having it also in this wide shot of wes standing on the tanker with everybody in the compound below you can see very clearly where everything is it's a nice establishing shot of the situation that we're finding ourselves, where the bodies are, where the cars are, where everybody's standing. I love shots like this. We have just experienced a few minutes of a lot of action, a lot of cutting from place to place, watching different people do different things, lots of people moving around. And so at the end of the scene, we get a view of what is where. Right. Where the rig landed, where the tanker is compared to the bus, where the dead raiders are. We really get a sense of the scene of everything that we just watched. Mm -hmm. Now, because Max ran straight to the bus, he was able to climb up. He gets to the flamethrower first. He has won the race to see who gets to burn people alive. And so he gets on that flamethrower. He angles it down and there are four raiders that are charging the gate kind of feel like there should be more given how much of this minute is spent without flamethrower active there should be at least a couple of raiders who've made it underneath the bus right or you know scooted around the sides that gate is not airtight but not airtight it's not people tight right i really gotta fault the raiders for not having more get up and go mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more motivation because when max gets on that flamethrower they're only about halfway across the moat they're not that far <laughs> no I'm like where's the hustle guys right and the way they just stop and run away is oh, so funny it's so dopey i mean speaking of dopey there's one of the raiders he's one of the bad cops and he's holding an unloaded crossbow and i'm like so that's gonna be your melee weapon (laughs) you don't want to have an axe like any of your other friends because the large smegma crazy dude the one that eventually gets lit on fire in the next shot he has a big old spatula machete hatchet thing the other guys have long handled axes those are instruments of war that can do some real damage and Then you've got Gomer Pyle over there who just brought an unloaded gun to a knife fight. (laughs) Not a great choice. No. I mean, granted, there's nothing any of them can do against a stream of fire that Max just rains down on them. And like I said, the big smegma crazy that was closest to the gate, he can't get away fast enough, so he catches on fire. (laughs) And... The Lord Among Us is just standing there watching all of this happen. You can tell he's just so frustrated. He should be frustrated at his own strategy. He was given an opportunity, a break in the flamethrower to get people in. Oh, it was a golden opportunity. As the leader, it's 
his fault that they didn't take proper advantage of that opportunity. Yeah. So he only has his, himself to blame. So with the Raiders once again in retreat, we get a shot of Max and he looks back towards Wes, who is standing on the tanker. And Wes points menacingly at Max and he says, you, you can run, but you can't hide. And as he's saying, but you can't hide, we switch back to looking at Max and Max glances back out on the valley. And then he almost realizes that Wes is talking specifically to him. And so he turns back to stare at Wes once more. It's another chapter in the book of Max and Wes. Yeah, at this point, I'm thinking about them as a bromance. Like, if you pick out all the other stuff that doesn't involve directly the one or the other of them, Mm -hmm. and, like, I'll bet you could, like, recut it as a romantic comedy. Oh, I'm sure. Someone who's very clever with editing software and tone Mm -hmm. and music could probably do a very good job of recutting Mad Max 2 into a romantic comedy between these two characters. Yeah. I don't have time for that. (laughs) I really don't. One thing to point out about this scene between the both of them, and I think for the rest of this minute, that it is going to be a lovely sunset. You can tell that the sun is getting low. Like there's a there's a nice golden glow, especially on Max on his face. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's getting to be evening. Okay. In some shots... It's getting to be evening, and it reminds me of when we were listening to the commentary and George Miller was talking to Dean Semler, and they were talking about how, you know, they shot at all hours of the day, and with an action movie, cutting things together the way it goes, you can mix afternoon shots with evening shots, with morning shots, with midday shots, and we get a quick shot, as if I haven't said shot enough in the last 30 seconds, of the feral child who runs up with his boomerang and he launches it at Wes, and Wes deflects it with his wrist-mounted crossbow. But the shot of Wes deflecting it with his crossbow is so very obviously an evening shot. Mm -hmm. And then everything around it is a midday shot. Yeah. With the light being very high. And they're not long shots. It's not like they're big 10-second long shots, so it's very easy to skip over it mentally. It is, and it really doesn't bother me. Most of the time, I really don't notice. Mm -hmm. It was very prevalent in this action scene. There were some shots that were evening shots with like a sunset glow about the place. There are some shots where they're, where the clouds are quite dark in the distance. And then there are some shots where they're puffy white clouds. Yeah. So in this action sequence, it was very noticeable. I'm okay. I, I'm not going to. I wouldn't say I don't it find ruins it the experience. Yeah. I think it, it's yeah. just the, one of the perils of shooting a movie outside. Yes. <laughs> not being in a contained controlled environment i do love the return of the boomerang because the feral child got to use it again yeah it was so effective the first time we saw it it killed one person and maimed another Mm -hmm. with very little effort on the part of the feral child and very little risk yeah one thing speaking of risk that stood out to me is the fact that the feral child threw his boomerang and he wasn't wearing his protective chainmail glove i feel like the feral child was being very confident about his boomerang hitting its target so that way it wouldn't be in a situation where he's waiting for it to return because Mm -hmm. he would just go pull it out of someone's head 
Mm-hmm. Although, I have to imagine, actually, no. All right, what I was going to say that I now think is incorrect, I was going to say, I imagine that he keeps the two items together because he always uses them together. But then I realized he's eight. Mm-hmm. He's not that organized. In the pressure of the moment, thinking quick, he grabbed his boomerang, but if his gauntlet wasn't right there with it, he's not going to go searching for his gauntlet. Yeah. He's just going to grab the boomerang and fling it at Wes. Because an eight-year-old realized that he had a perfect clear shot. Right. When nobody else did. All of the adults were just sitting around twiddling their thumbs. And the eight-year-old's like, fine, if you guys aren't going to step up to the plate, here I go again on my own. And he just tosses that boomerang. And Wes happens to be wearing a big old metal crossbow on his arm. It's not big, but you know what I'm trying to say. It's enough. And he deflects the boomerang, and it flies off screen. And I don't know off the top of my head if it comes back, but if it does come back, I'll be like, oh, hey, he found it. Yeah. Before this minute ends properly, the last... I'd say like 14 frames of this minute are spent in a POV shot of this are spent in a POV shot from the gyro captain's perspective flying over the action. So we're going to pick up with that shot tomorrow. We're going to talk about it then. What I really like about this shot is how we get there. We were brought up to the sky paying attention to it by the boomerang Mm -hmm. flying off into wherever. And then that leads us right into POV from the gyrocopter. It's almost like, before you realize it's a gyrocopter, it's almost like the POV is from the boomerang. Good point. And it just rolls so nicely and so smoothly into the gyrocopter coming on the scene. Yep. So we're going to talk more about the gyrocopter tomorrow when we pick up with Minute 54. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for a minute 50 of the Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.